Researchers have a message for the 30 million Americans living with diabetes today. Based on what we have achieved, I'm very, very confident that we will get over those last obstacles, and in your lifetime, there will be a cure for this. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, fighting back against diabetes. Later in the show, how countries in Africa are facing down a new health threat. Diabetes is on the rise, but the treatment has still not caught up with it because all of the aid goes for things like HIV and the infectious diseases. But first, managing diabetes requires consistency. Many diabetics choose familiar foods, eat at the same time every day, and constantly monitor their sugar intake. But what if your job is unpredictable? Like, for example, you're a journalist covering issues all across the African continent. With good reason, producer Cass Adair spoke to such a journalist. Lots of 13-year-old kids go through weird phases, but Ryan Brown's fixation was a little extra weird. In my case, it was blue Gatorade. I just was like obsessively drinking blue Gatorade. This whole blue Gatorade thing got so weird that her parents ended up taking her to the hospital. We didn't even get to a doctor or a nurse. The woman checking me in said, do you have any history of diabetes in your family? Because it was just that obvious from the symptoms that I was presenting that that's what I had. Today, Ryan is healthy and she's full of energy and she's pretty much over the whole blue Gatorade thing. And she kind of has to be. She's a journalist. She works for the Christian Science Monitor and her beat is covering the entire continent of Africa. I was in northern Nigeria a couple weeks ago. I was sort of writing stories about what it's like to live in the shadow of Boko Haram. If your day job is tracking terrorist groups like Boko Haram around northern Nigeria, then you probably don't want to be spending all day worrying about your blood sugar. But at the same time, if you have type 1 diabetes like Ryan, you have to be constantly testing your blood sugar. Back when I went on insulin, People were mostly taking a kind of insulin where you took it, and then the insulin had peaks and valleys of how much it was working throughout the day. And so you had to eat certain amounts at certain times of day, and then you couldn't eat any other times of day. So that was sort of my initial regimen of treatment. But now she can pretty much do it all from a smartphone. I wear something called a continuous glucose monitor. It's a sort of little sensor that I wear on my arm or on my stomach. And it's there all the time collecting data about what my blood sugar is. And then it transmits it to my phone via Bluetooth. So that little sensor thing, it actually goes all the way inside Ryan's body, all the way into her muscles. And then if her blood sugar is off, that sensor will send a signal back out into the app. And then the app will make Ryan's phone ring. That's a super helpful one, you know, when you are out in the field somewhere and you're like deeply immersed in an interview with like an imam in northeastern Nigeria and you're just really thinking about that and you're not at all focused on where your blood sugar is or how what you ate earlier might have affected it, you know, then you get those alarms and it sort of calls you back to reality. So she's got that blood sugar app, but she's also got an insulin pump that she has to wear on her body all the time. So people, when they see it for the first time, they usually say to me, is that a pager? Um, which is a bit of an odd question because I would probably be the last person on earth with a pager. But that is the, the sort of reference point, what it most looks like. Um, so it's basically like a sort of pancreas you carry around outside of your body with you all the time. If you're like me and you forgot a lot of your high school anatomy, the pancreas is the organ inside the body that's supposed to regulate blood sugar and a bunch of other stuff. But hers is literally attached to her at the hip. You don't always have to be in the same routine or on the same schedule, which you're obviously not going to be if you're traveling, um, doing interviews, going from place to place, eating new foods, all of that. So it makes a big, big difference. As far as the downsides to this technology, there's uh, one big one. To be honest, it always just gets a little gross because it's, it's, taped, it's taped down to your skin, right? So when you take it off three or five or seven days after you've put it on, it's always a bit of a situation under there. Yeah, a situation. Ryan says that she's pretty much okay with the way things are. Her technology works really well, and it lets her do all sorts of amazing things. The only thing that would be better is if her pancreas worked, and it could be inside her body. That was With Good Reasons, Cass Adair, speaking with Ryan Brown, the Africa correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor. Ryan's wish for a new working pancreas isn't too far off. 
Dr. Jose Oberholzer is a researcher and surgeon at the University of Virginia Health Center. He says transplanting islet cells from a healthy pancreas into a diabetes patient can essentially cure the disease, but they're nowhere near enough to go around. Jose, you have said that you lie awake nights and wake up mornings thinking about finding a lasting cellular cure for diabetes patients. Do we already have something approaching a cellular cure? In some ways, yes. Um, We are able to transplant today insulin-producing cells that are isolated from a donated organ, from a pancreas, and we can inject that into a patient. Then those cells will take over the function of what the pancreas used to do in those patients, and then those patients are functionally cured. Most diabetes patients live their lives without ever having an organ or cellular transplant, right? That's correct. So in in the United States, we have currently about 30 million diabetic patients, uh, and only a very, very small number of patients um, will be lucky enough to get such a transplant. So in the patients who have received such a transplant uh, and are off insulin, I think I would call this a a functional cure, and, and we have it. And we have patients that have not injected insulin for over a decade and you have to imagine, these were patients who don't know a life without insulin. They, that's just they thought, that's it, and that's going to have to be like that for the rest of their lives. And so we do this procedure in local anesthesia. It's a same-day procedure. They go home, and then we tell them after a few days, well, reduce the insulin and reduce it again. And then after a few weeks, we tell them, you may now stop insulin. And to them, that's something that they never thought they would live during their lifetime. So it is transformational for those patients. And to achieve that, you need an organ from a deceased donor? Yes, you need an organ from a deceased donor. And it's a, it's a number issue. So there are somewhere around 8,000 organ donors a year for the whole country. And of those, probably only 1,500 are suitable for this process. That, of course, uh, will never address the need uh, of 30 million diabetic patients. With the transplant, is it better to transplant the pancreas or to transplant the islet cells from the pancreas? So if a patient requires an other organ transplant, like a kidney, um, then we have to open up the patient anyway to do the kidney transplant. Then it makes sense to just do a normal pancreas transplant. And then for somebody who only would need a pancreas transplant, so who has normal kidney function, doesn't have advanced diabetic complications yet, of course, it would be preferable to have the cells. However, there is a limitation in the number of cells that we can give per patient. And if somebody is very heavy or uses lots of insulin, then the pancreas transplant is still superior. So the islet cell transplant is in some ways like a mini pancreas transplant. And the pancreas transplant is still the gold standard. That will change the moment we have an unlimited amount of cells. Help me understand the cell sources. These are stem cells which can come from a number of different parts of the body. That's correct. So we can simply divide it in those that come from embryos, and that's more controversial. Uh, Some people would not accept that for religious or ethical reasons, and then some would question it also from a practicality point of view. And then there are the stem cells that we take from adult people that require to transform them, to change them, to turn into stem cells, and that's routinely done. And for that, we already have therapies available for eye diseases, for example, where cells are generated, created out of those adult stem cells. And that's probably the more practical approach and probably where the field will move towards. And those stem cells come from where? They come from anywhere in the human body. So typically they can come from the skin, uh, from what we call fibroblasts, so cells that we have under the skin that form uh, various tissues. Uh, and then we, we put them essentially in a Petri dish and throw some magic things at it. <laughs> and then the cells will go back in time in some ways and then turn into a stem cell. If we grow our own and have unlimited quantities, don't we still have the problem of the body rejecting the cells? Yes. And so today we solve the problem by suppressing the immune system of patients, like we would do in any organ transplant. But moving forward, 
we would like to avoid that. We would like to go to infants, to small children, and be able to transplant and them not having to take any medications. To do so, the approach that we have chosen is to protect the cells by a membrane, by essentially a capsule. And those materials have been tested now for over two decades, uh, and they have already been in humans, uh, but they all provoked a foreign body reaction, a scarring reaction. So we had to go back to the drawing board and work with chemical engineers and people that know how to change biomaterials and went on a long, long search. And about two or three years ago, we were finally able to have materials, biomaterials, that we can implant in the human body and don't provoke any reaction. Did it turn out to be a really interesting substance, such as a certain plant or the intestine of a pig, that kind of thing? <laughs> or was it more that they engineered something we'd already been using? No, they engineered something that did not exist. So a chemist was there for more than six years just making up new molecules. And at the end, it was a molecule that you could not have anticipated to have this effect. So this was very systematic research. There was no rationale behind. It was essentially creating new molecules and testing them. And, and so this is now available. And, and so now we have to solve the cell issue once for all. And then the combination of an unlimited cell and the capsule material, this will be microcapsules, small capsules, um, we should be able to provide what we call a functional cure for diabetes. Do you have a projected number of years that you can imagine we may get there? So the capsules would be available today. So we could potentially combine them with cadaveric islets, is something that we are in discussion. But of course, the large-scale application depends on the source of cells. And I think for that, we probably need another three years, three to five years to get to the point where we have the right cells. Mm, that's exciting. Yep. <laughs> Did I hear you right that there were only 1,500 pancreases, when all is said and done, that are available for the millions who have diabetes? That's correct. And that's very frustrating because every time I see a patient who had an islet cell transplant who hasn't injected for years insulin, I just like feel this inner urge that we should be able to apply this to many, many more patients. How many patients, let's say, roughly, do you see in a year with this diabetic condition you could do something about? So to give you an idea um, of the proportions, I mean, we did our first trial in the United States in 2003 at the Chicago Diabetes Project. Um, um, we knew that we will only be able to transplant 10 patients. That's how much funding we had, and that's what the Food and Drug Administration allowed us to get started. We screened over 1,000 patients to ultimately transplant 10 patients, and we did not advertise. We didn't, you know, this was just um, hearsay. And imagine we would advertise. We would not be able to answer the phones. Uh, there are so many patients out there uh, that would need this. You're still so devoted to the Chicago Diabetes Project that you founded 15 years ago. What inspired you to found it? In, <laughs> that's uh, an interesting question, and I'm almost a bit embarrassed to sh share that publicly, but it was a book um, about the creation of the nuclear bomb and the Manhattan Project. Uh, and I'm totally not fascinated by the nuclear bomb by any means. <laughs> Don't take me wrong, but I was fascinated by the urgency of making a scientific, almost impossible appearing solution. There was a huge threat uh, from Germany. The Americans knew if we do not create this quick enough, the Germans will create it. Uh, and there was good evidence it would happen. And in some ways, we have this threat from diabetes. And if we don't find a cure for this quickly, it's going to be really devastating for millions of patients. And, and so seeing how the Americans solved uh, that really extremely difficult scientific task of this knowing how to create a nuclear bomb, uh, the physics had to be invented, the manufacturing had to be invented, everything had to be invented. It was totally new territory. And they put all these minds together and somehow figured out how to suppress the egos <laughs> and work as a team. And I just thought, wow, if we could do this, have this sense of urgency 
and create teams like that, not for the nuclear bomb, but to cure diabetes, I thought that would be that would be something that would change the fate of medicine and part of immunity. And so that's how we started it, and that's how we try to work. Mm-hmm. I'm really touched by that. Now I understand the term project. So the Manhattan Project, the Chicago Diabetes Project. Wow, what a great thing. If you have a goal, you're much more likely to achieve it. Yep, there is something magic about setting goals. <laughs> well, I'm so grateful that you were able to do this and share your excitement and your dedication to this ultimate outcome. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. And I, and I just want to let diabetic patients know out there, we, we understand diabetes is a 24-7 disease. We understand it just never goes away. It's all the time there. You're juggling what you need to eat, how much insulin, how much exercise you will have. It, it never lets you rest. And, and I think we all in the labs and in the clinical trials and in contact with every patient, we know that and we feel your pain. And I can assure you there are a lot of scientists dedicating their lives to this. And I don't want to make any wrong promises, but based on what we have achieved, I'm very, very confident that we will get over those last obstacles. And in your lifetime, there will be a cure for this. Jose Oberholzer is a researcher and surgeon and director of the Charles O. Strickler Transplant Center at the University of Virginia Health Center. Coming up next, home-cooked meals in Tanzanian hospitals. We've been hearing about the diabetes epidemic in the United States for decades, but it's rapidly becoming more common in developing countries. And yet, in many of those places, diagnosis and treatment lags far behind the United States. Sharon Zook is a nursing professor at James Madison University. She's just back from leading a group of nursing students on a trip to Tanzania to help fight diabetes there. I caught up with her at a senior center where she'd just finished teaching a class. Sharon, thank you for taking a moment with us. What did your students make of their experience in Tanzania? They loved it. It is life-changing for them. Um, It takes a little while, and they have to discuss how the culture affects them and what they think. And, of course, you can always have somebody that's homesick. But in the end, they love it. Help me understand the lifestyle and the health challenges for the people where you all were. So Tanzania is sub-Saharan Africa, so it's just a little bit west and south of the Sahara. So the lifestyle is very much rural in the Lake Victoria area, and the hospital is a very rural hospital. The people pretty much farm. Men still have sometimes multiple wives, and there's a senior wife who dictates the younger wives. They usually have many children because children are considered an asset to work on their farm and to work in their fields. So it's not unusual for one family to have 12 children, maybe by three different women. It's very hard work. The women do most of the work. They cook, they farm, they educate the children if the children don't go to school. But the trend is now to have most of the children go to school. What is healthcare like there? A hospital is a very different thing there. So before they go to a hospital, they usually go to a natural healer, and they will try those options first. And the hospital may be a long distance from where they live. So a hospital is kind of a last resort. For example, most women's babies are born at home, and they may labor for a day and a half or two days before they decide to go to the hospital. And it's the male's decision whether or not the wife or the children get health care. It's still a very male-dominant society. Since they wait so long to go to the hospital, in some households, the hospital is known as the place to die. It's a last resort place. So sometimes by the time they get there, it's been so long that it's too late to intervene. So another thing in the hospital that I neglected to say is that meals are not provided by the hospital. The families bring their meals. So the families stay there with their spouses, mothers, dads, children. 
This particular hospital had a foundation that provided one meal a day for children because they realized that nutrition is such a, an important part of healing. But for the most part, the families stay and they provide the meals for their patients, for their family members. They're there the whole time. They're involved in the care. They give part of the care. They do all the feeding, unlike our hospitals there. I understand you and your students and other teachers actually went there for one purpose, and that was to help them with the rise in cases of type 2 diabetes all across sub-Saharan Africa. It's surprising me to think of a rise in this type of diabetes in a place where so many people are farmers. So we think that that would be true. And it was true for a very long time. When you think of any African country, you would think of the infectious diseases, like things that are caused by poor water quality or um, HIV, for example. So that's changing in Africa. We're not really quite sure why. We think some of it is lifestyle because our Western society has also gotten over there, unfortunately. But one of the things we identified last year when we were there is that diabetes is on the rise, and we know that from the statistics. And Tanzania is one of the top three countries in Africa as far as incidence of diabetes goes. Diabetes is on the rise, but the treatment has still not caught up with it because all of the aid goes for things like HIV and the infectious diseases. Do you mean people aren't getting any diagnosis and treatment? So one of the things that we identified is that people with diabetes take medication there, but they don't really know how effective it is. And so they may come in and get a blood sugar done. We're all familiar with the little finger stick blood sugars, but a blood sugar only tells us what's happening right at that point of time. So if it's a blood sugar after you just ate, it's going to be elevated. If it's a blood sugar when you're fasting, it may be elevated, but not as much. But it doesn't tell us what's going on. Here in the U.S., we have a test that's called an A1C that measures the average of your blood sugars over the last 90 days. They didn't have that at these hospitals that we had visited last year. So when we came back, I thought, well, wonder if they would be interested in something like that. Emailed the chief medical officers there. So last year, we took those machines over there. And those machines tell you it's great for people that live a long distance from the hospital because it tells us what their blood sugar was like over the last 90 days. And so we were interested this year to see how that's influenced the care at these two hospitals and if it's influenced the care because we as Americans tend to be egotistical sometimes and we think we're going to give them the best of everything and things go over there and then they're not used again after you leave. So practices are very hard to change. Practice is really a difficult thing to change. Even here in the United States, it takes about seven years for something that we find in research to get implemented in our system. So we didn't know if we would make a difference with this machine or not. We just knew we wanted to try. And what did you learn? It seems to me that that would be more sophistication than you needed. I would think most people need the medicine or the needles or kits, things like that. So in one hospital that we were at, that hospital is called Sharadi. And at that hospital, which is a rural hospital, we found out there were people that were going to have this test done that had to travel two days to get there, pay for an overnight, and go to a larger hospital. So that hospital might have an endocrinologist, but might not. So what we hoped for was that we would have this machine, and even if they wanted the endocrinologist to take a look at it, they wouldn't have to travel there, because that meant a family member had to go with them. It was an overnight, and it was very expensive. So they never did it, unless there was a crisis, and then they would. Could you tell that people in that community were suffering from the consequences of diabetes, or did you just want to make sure they had this tool in case they did? So they were suffering from the consequences of diabetes. There were loss of limbs. There was loss of vision. There was loss of nerve conduction, what we call neuropathy here. And because they didn't have a good way to monitor how they were doing on the medicines, or if the medicines need increased or changed, 
there was nothing that happened. Like a medicine would be prescribed and they would just be on that medicine forever. So is our main worry for these people that they don't know they have diabetes or that they don't know the consequences of having diabetes or that the entire population in some of these poorest countries will experience an enormous rise in numbers of cases? So I'd say see all of the above. They don't have the knowledge and the tools to use to know how to control it. They don't frequently know that they have diabetes unless they're tested, and they might not be tested until something happens, a consequence, and they say, oh, this could be a result of diabetes. They're not screened like we are here in the U.S. However, because it's on the rise in those countries, screening is starting to happen now. After a certain age, we screen here in the United States, and with a family history, we screen more often. But it's gonna take time. You know, this has to have been such an eye-opening and moving experience for your young nursing students. What do you think they saw that will really stay with them? I think the most impactful thing was seeing children die there that we don't, that wouldn't die if they were receiving care here. Malaria is a big disease there, and malaria has fever, and it also decreases oxygen levels in children. And once they get the respiratory complications, it's very hard for them to recover from it. So if you don't bring a child to the hospital until they're in the late stages, For example, an O2 saturation here in the U.S., a normal one in a child, would be in the 90%. And we saw a child that had an O2 saturation point by the time they were brought to the hospital, 40%. That's not even something we expect in an adult with heart failure here, you know, who would have problems with oxygen. So by the time that happens, it's really difficult to save that child. That must have been heartbreaking for these young students. It's very difficult. So what I would see is we would be over at the hospital in a shift and and the students would work with these children and we would go back and eat dinner and they would say, I want to go back to the hospital to see how that child's doing. And then inevitably one or two of them the next day would have died by the time we came back. And it's devastating. So some of these nursing students had never seen a death before, let alone a death of a child let alone a death of a child that probably would have lived here in the U.S. Sharon Zook is a professor at the James Madison University School of Nursing. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. In 20 years, a lot can change, but there's still one thing you'd think most heart surgeons could count on. If you can't feel a pulse, you're in trouble. Except even that is not true anymore. Now nature's most basic sound of life can be replaced by the high-pitched mechanical whine of a next-generation heart pump. These pumps are smaller, stronger, and more reliable than heart pumps of old, and they're changing the type of heart patient surgeons like Dr. John Kern are seeing. He's been at the University of Virginia's School of Medicine for almost 20 years, And now, he says, new medical technologies are changing the game and extending life beyond where we once thought possible. So patients have clearly become, if you will, older and sicker. A decade or two or three ago, heart conditions that would have routinely taken someone's life in a short period of time are now being treated successfully. Now, when I say treated, often that means being slowed down. So more and more patients are living longer with their disease process. We used to die of different things. More people used to die of tuberculosis and pneumonia than do nowadays. Is the same true for heart patients back in the day? Yeah, it depends on how far back in the day you're talking about. But, uh, you know, heart patients used to have a heart attack and, and die fairly early from that or they would have a heart valve problem and it would not get diagnosed and then they'd come in late in the game and and they would die from that. Today, you know, we're diagnosing things earlier. You know, heart valve problems we're diagnosing very early and treating early and uh, survival after heart attacks is is remarkably good. 
and it's allowing people to live with their problems and live longer with their problems. And although I said, you know, we're seeing them come in older and sicker, uh, the one thing they're not doing is coming in, usually not anymore, coming in older, sicker, and malnourished. Um, that used to happen? That used to happen. People's heart failure was so bad that they didn't even have enough energy to eat and metabolize the food they're eating, things like that, and they just waste away. What is the most typical kind of heart disease that most of us have? So that's coronary artery disease. Same thing as hardening of the arteries? Hardening, good old-fashioned. So I still use that a lot. That, that's the tried-and-true phrase for it. But that's what it is. It involves the coronary arteries, and that's what leads to heart attacks and damaged heart muscle. And once you have that, you know, those things are permanent, and, and the heart kind of, you know, every heart attack you have, that means they have more and more heart muscle damage. And, and that's what the vast majority of these 5 or 6 million people in the United States living with heart failure, that's what the vast majority of these people have is coronary disease. For those of us who've not yet had heart attacks... What have you noticed in terms of medication that helps prevent it down the road? Do you believe more people should be on statins? That turns into practice what you preach sort of thing. And um, Oh, you're not. <laughs> I hope my doctor's not listening. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it's, it, it's tough. There's enough data out there to say that lipid modification and statins are beneficial. And I go by the principles of, you know, understand the risk factors, understand your own genetic predisposition to perhaps develop problems, and understand the environmental risk factors that you can modify and control. And then it's up to you to, 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 to be engaged and, and do it or don't do it. You know, smoking's the number one biggest risk factor, but there are people who still smoke. So, you know, which risk factors you want to control and which ones you're going to let slide. But there's no doubt we know what those risk factors are and we know that they can be controlled. And that's the, that's the relationship that you and your physician need to have to make sure you're doing everything you can and they're doing everything they can to help you with it. It seems only recently that we've realized the plaque that was injuring our hearts and our arteries is actually injuring our minds too. So that is a huge concept that people don't understand, that the most common form of heart disease is coronary artery disease, hardening of the arteries. That is a what we call systemic disease. It does not just affect the arteries of the heart. It affects all the arteries in the body. It affects the arteries to your legs. That's getting a lot of press and airtime lately called PAD, right, peripheral arterial disease. It affects the carotid arteries and the arteries that carry blood flow to your brain. And, you know, uh, that can lead to strokes or mini strokes uh, and may even play a role in some forms of dementia. What has been a game changer in terms of you performing your duties as a surgeon in the last dozen years or so? Um, really, a lot of the minimally invasive techniques that have come along the way to help us treat all forms of heart disease. So whether you're talking about stents for coronary disease or you're talking about something we call transcatheter aortic valve replacement for aortic stenosis, where we can give someone a new aortic valve through a catheter that we thread up through the artery in their leg versus open heart surgery. That, that's, that's a game changer. So there's so much we're doing that is miniaturizing a very invasive process before. Correct. And, and the same thing with, with these heart pumps. Uh, up until really about the last eight to 10 years, uh, heart pumps were uh, basically the size of a dinner plate, you know, that big around. Initially, patients were stuck in the hospital with them. Technology improved, and, and um, the energy sources uh, and the battery packs and whatnot, the, the, the drivers for these systems were made smaller than patients could go home. But the real game changer happened when the latest generation heart pump came out, which was about the size of a mouse. Not only that, but the latest generation heart pumps uh, seem to be more effective. They're allowing patients who are presenting late with their heart failure, meaning they have other end organ dysfunction, their kidneys are shutting down, their liver shutting down. These heart pumps can sometimes reverse that process and allow their other organs to recover and allow them to be in a good enough shape to potentially undergo a heart transplant. There's another group of patients who may not be eligible ever, potentially, for a heart transplant. And some of these folks tend to be older patients, patients in their mid to upper 70s, I've even put a heart pump in someone in their early 80s, and it allows them to recover, stay out of the hospital, be functional, do the things they want to do, and extends a good quality of life. Does a heart pump still let you have a pulse? Does it 
pump, 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 pump. So the modern uh, latest generation heart pumps are what we call continuous flow devices. So they really don't have uh, a pulse that you can feel. Does that mean they can think faster because more oxygen is getting to their brain? Well, we would like to hope so. Uh, But in all seriousness, uh, a lot of people with end-stage heart failure, again, their organs are shutting down, and the brain is one of those organs. If you get the blood flow going again, they get a heart pump, blood's going where it needs to go, and and they they can function better. But these continuous flow uh, devices are effective, and they do allow organ recovery for those folks uh, who are in the worst shape. What have you heard is sort of in the works that you would love to see, sort of the way IT people are talking about artificial intelligence. What is sort of over the horizon? Well, as good as modern heart pumps are and as effective as they are, uh, they're not perfect. If you have a heart pump, you have to be on blood thinners. And there is a risk of of bleeding, usually uh, gastrointestinal bleeding for patients with heart pumps on blood thinners. There's also a risk of of stroke. Uh, The blood thinner thing with heart pumps is kind of a a fine line to walk because your blood needs to be thin enough so you don't form any clots within the pump itself. If you form clots, they can potentially break off and cause a stroke. So on the horizon, in addition to these pumps becoming even smaller and smaller, on the horizon are the development of biomaterials um, that these pumps can either be lined with or made with that allow them to be basically unrecognizable by the body. So when the blood flows through it, it's not, you know, going through, a, you know, f- contacting a foreign surface. And so the whole issue of clots forming and needing blood thinners, hopefully that'll go away. And the other areas in the, the, the pump's powered, but you don't need a drive line coming through the skin. Anything even more of a reach imaginatively, not just with pumps, but in this whole field? Yeah, I think something that's exciting that has been talked about for a while, which is being done right now clinically, and, and we're doing it, is is for certain patients uh, with failing hearts, injecting stem cells in, into their fail heart muscle to see if those stem cells can differentiate into new heart muscle and help the heart improve. And some early studies going back uh, a decade or two actually have shown that ha- that might actually be possible. It's not been repetitively proven that that's the case. So we're still working on that, number one. Number two is the other option of, of growing body parts outside of the body, you know, um, 3D bioprinters and, and things like that. So I think there are a lot of really exciting things. A lot of these things are making it to the main mainstream press. I mean, everyone's probably seen that already, you know, growing a pancreas in a Petri dish or with bioprinters. But the next step, the, you know, putting it in and really seeing it work and all, but that, that, that's where we're at now, so... Are there other bureaucratic changes that you'd like to see us move toward in in medicine in America, just that you have strong feelings about? Mm -hmm. The biggest thing right now, these wonderful technologies that are proven and can be beneficial to a lot of people, even though they have some problems, they're expensive. They are expensive. Someday they won't be, but they are now. You hope they're not going to be. I know the cell phone I have in my pocket, you know, is is what the technology, what, tw- 20 years ago, that technology cost how much, you know, a billion dollars or something? You hope that, you know, these heart pumps and things are going to get less expensive. And, and we've seen it, you know, we've seen that happen with medication and things like that, and prices go up and down and patents run out and things like that. But these technologies are expensive, and there, there are a lot of people out there with great ideas. And, you know, how do these ideas get off the ground? And I guess you have, you know, what, a- angel investors and... and government small business grants and things like that to keep things going and you know really the only hope at that point and this is and this has happened I won't name any names because it's happened very recently with devices we're talking about right now you get bought out by by the the few big names I knew you were going to say that yeah. so here you are you're making it you're making it simply and well and then the entity that wants to keep the prices high buys you out well, but in, in some in some ways, that's the only way to keep it going, though, too, because, you know, the startup folks, you know, they're making it, they're making it well, but th- they need help to keep it going. And the only folks who can help them are, are the folks with the, with the deeper, slightly deeper pockets. I mean, that, that's the only way the technology can continue to be available in some of these situations. So, John Kern, thank you for talking with me today on With Good Reason. Thank you. It's been my pleasure.
John Kern is Chief of the Division of Cardiothoracic Surgery at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. Coming up next, can sunny days help treat dementia? We all love the sun, but does it actually make us calmer and happier? Lisa Onega, a professor of nursing at Radford University, led a team of researchers as they tried to prove that sunlight could help treat these patients who had agitation and depression. We took about 60 individuals who had different levels of dementia and exposed them to light therapy and evaluated them on depression and agitation. We evaluated them over eight weeks in long-term care facilities. Aren't there lots of studies that already show light exposure works for things like seasonal affective disorder? How was your work building on this or different from these studies? You're absolutely right. What we did is we applied the existing well-acknowledged research on seasonal affective disorder and bright lights, and we applied it to a very vulnerable population, older adults with dementia. Has light therapy not been studied with older people with dementia? There have been some mixed studies on it, but very few, and we wanted to do a definitive study. So what we wanted to do is look at all of those studies, see what worked, what didn't work, and then do a very controlled study using the elements that we thought were important and eliminating those that we thought muddied the water. So when you looked at all the studies of using sunlight to treat people with dementia, were the results mixed? Did some studies say it doesn't work and some studies say it did? Absolutely. There were not very many. There were, we found 11, but there may have, there may have been a few extras, but, but basically a very small number of studies at the time that we started our project. And our study showed that it had a huge, not small, which we expected, or medium, but huge effect. And what is a huge effect? Well, that's a statistical term, effect size. But agitation actually increased in the control group or in the group that didn't get bright light. And depression stayed about the same. But for those who got the light exposure, their depression plummeted and their agitation also plummeted. We were wrapping up our project at one of our sites, and I was collecting all of our lights, and a family member came over to me and said, I don't know whether my loved one was in the bright light or placebo light study, but since you started your study, our loved one is talking, engaged, social, not agitated. We love this study. And it was it was really fabulous to have that kind of feedback from family members who didn't really know which, which group their member was in, but felt that our intervention was significant. Did you talk to others also? Well, a lot, we had uh, family members who wanted the bright light treatment for themselves because they said being a caregiver and having a loved one in this situation makes us feel really stressed and depressed. Would you look at those outcome variables with us? And we also had staff who said the same thing. So it seemed very popular. Wow. What do you mean? The staff saw the light treatment for the dementia patients and realized it was so effective they wanted it? Yes, that's exactly what I mean. So we've talked a lot about how we'd set it up so the night shift staff could also benefit as well as the day shift staff. And again, the complexity of a design to test that is challenging, but uh, we plan to go there. That's so interesting. What is the light like if you are one of the patients? Is it warm and penetrating from overhead and you're not really staring into a bulb? It's bright. What happened is I had initially taken the treatment myself before starting with patients, and I didn't like it. It was really quite bright, and our lights are very large, and it felt unpleasant. So I actually was going to not do the study because it didn't feel like something I wanted to do with older adults. So I called um, the our Sunbox Bright Light Company partner, and the research team discussed this issue, and we decided to try to change the way the lights looked so it was more like being outside on a sunny day. So it ended up being really beautiful. We put a tree on either side of the light, mm -hmm. and we put a bush in front of it, and Sarah, this was really cool. At some of the places I would go to, people who didn't have dementia would come up to me as I was setting up the 
treatment and they would say, oh, this is so pretty. What are you doing here? And that oh. made me feel really happy that aesthetically we had made it look not exactly, but we tried to mirror a sunny day outside. So for the people who got the bright light, how much of an improvement did you see anecdotally for most members? Did they all improve? Almost all of them did. The majority of them, staff would report, oh, this is making a huge difference, or family members would report, this person's engaged in their environment a little more, enjoying their eating. They're not as... um, upset about what's going on around them. We can do their morning care a little bit better. And I can't tell you how rewarding it is as a researcher. You know, we're looking at research outcomes, not necessarily, and we hope they have clinical outcomes down the road. But it is so rewarding as a nurse to hear family members say, my family member who I couldn't connect with for many years or for many months, in this case, many years, we had we had moments. We had connection. We were able to have a relationship. That that to me is what this is about: making a difference in p- patients and family members' lives. Are you also hoping that using intense light therapy, let's say twice a day, on patients like this, may reduce the need for some of the pills that they are taking, some of the medication they're getting? You are absolutely right about that. We want to see if it makes a difference. If we can decrease the use of antidepressants or some of the antipsychotic and other medications used to help with agitation, it would be amazing because it would be good from a financial perspective for society, but it would be good from a clinical perspective because it would reduce side effects and other potential interactions with medications. So that's absolutely where we want to go in the future. That would be a fabulous thing because there's been such a growth in the use of medicine, especially for patients like this, in the last few decades. We agree with you so much on that. And we're not opposed to medicines, but we don't think that should be the only treatment option. We think that if there are other things that work that are maybe less expensive and that have virtually no side effects, it's a good place to start there or to use as an adjunct and potentially reduce the the amount of medication a person needs. Where do you want to go from here? You want to scale this up, right? Make a much larger study. We've submitted a study elsewhere. We have three others that we're planning to do down the road. And absolutely critical is to know the minimum use of light that's effective. So we want to know Is it better to do it in the morning? Is it better to do it in the evening? Does it have to be 30 minutes? Could it be 15? Could it be an hour? We want to get our dosing correct. Then we want to look at how do we implement this so that it becomes part of residential facilities. And instead of having a special location, it could be an individual participant's rooms. And down the road, we're so thrilled with our research. We think it has implications in the home setting, not just in long-term care settings. So if you had a family member who had dementia, and we could set up something at your dinner table so you could all experience the light, the caregiver and the person with dementia, it would be seamless in their lives. You yourself are a nursing professor. Do you think that nurses bring a unique perspective to patient care for this population? I think so. We look at all aspects of health. How are they engaging in their environment? What's their socialization? What's their nutrition? How are their physical health issues, their cardiovascular disease, et cetera? How are those going? Are they more motivated to be active? Um, So we're looking at a lot of different aspects. We love partnering with all of our healthcare team members, but we think that we're incredibly holistic. What do we understand about the effect of light on people? I know it's complicated, but there must be both physiological and psychological effects. Tell us a little bit about what is known. Just like with light on a sunny day, we can all experience that. When it's a sunny day and the weather's warm and it kind of makes us feel ready to go, energized and sometimes even calm but still energized and ready to go. And so the experience, we believe, is similar with the light exposure that we're using. Are we experiencing light on a sunny day as a beautiful picture or are we absorbing certain rays that are affecting our psychological state? Probably both. It's the experience, the aesthetic, but it's also 
physiologically, we believe there are brain chemistry pathways where one has to absorb the light. And interestingly, we don't think it's absorbed through the skin like you might think with vitamin D when a person's in the sunlight. We think it has to go through a pathway through the eye. That's why they have to keep their eyes open. So if people are listening to this, what's to stop nursing homes and care facilities and home caregivers everywhere from trying to implement some form of light therapy? Why should they be stopped? As long as they're prudent and don't just implement something and not evaluate it, I think that would be great. Well, Lisa Onega, thank you for sharing your experiment and your results with us today on With Good Reason. Well, thank you for having me on. Here comes the sun, do-do-do-do Here comes the sun, and I say It's all right Lisa Onega is a professor of nursing at Radford University. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods. Support also comes from Smithfield, a global food company committed to providing food in a responsible way so consumers can share meals and memories with family and friends. Smithfieldfoods.com With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Our interns are Emily Hayes and Adriana Gallo. Georgiana Reed is our production assistant. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.